Hi, so I'm glad you're here. Um, I'm giving a little pre-talk talk right now, and I just wanted to introduce the subject. It's a sort of like sprawling uh, story from the, the Torah that I want to tell you, including lots of reincarnation and all sorts of stuff. You'll, you'll, you'll hear it in a moment. But it does deal with um, uh, an aspect of, of capital punishment um, in the Torah. And I thought that before we sort of plunged in, I'd just give you just a, a very quick overview of, um, of, of certain activities that the, that, the, that the price that the Torah says is, judicially speaking, it's a, it's a capital crime, meaning to say that, that the person would have to uh, give up their own life if they were, if they were convicted. Um, so obviously it's a very sensitive topic. And there are, if you read through the Torah, there, there are many capital crimes. And, and sort of the, the casual reader might uh, be led to the conclusion that, that this is a sort of a vicious, primitive, you know, barbaric system where, you know, people are sort of killed at the drop of a hat. So, so I think it's very important that we, we actually understand what the Torah is saying. Um, and that is that uh, the, Talmud, the Talmud records that, that if, a, if a court sentenced a person to death, once in 70 years, it was considered a vicious court. So now all of a sudden, everything changes. You realize that uh, while these um, sentences, so to speak, were, were, are enshrined in the Torah, nonetheless, it was, it was very, very rare that they were ever enacted. And not only that, but today, in today's day and age, there are no there are no capital offenses because the that that justice that the taking of a life would have to be done by the Sanhedrin, the great court of the Jewish people, and there is no Sanhedrin today. So, in other words, even if you met the the very um, uh, you know detailed um, restrictions. That 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 would that would have to take place in in order for the person to be prosecuted. There there is no Sanhedrin today to prosecute them. So what are some of the restrictions? So you get a better sense of just how hard it was to to execute anyone. So the person has to have been warned about this particular crime that 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 they would have been committing. You know to to have their life taken from them um, two times. They had they have to have been warned twice, and they still do it. And then you have to have two witnesses witnessing this crime from different angles. The witnesses can't be related to each other. Um, they have to have actually seen the the, the, the precise committing of the crime. Um, so, in other words, if it were a a uh, you know an, an act of immorality, they would have to actually see the the actual moment that the that the thing took place. So you can use your imagination to realize how, how difficult that would be for two different people from two different angles and all the rest and having been warned and and, and so anyway, hopefully you get the point that uh, that the, the the Jewish system of justice is, is, is one of peace and and, and, and great love. Um, nonetheless the, these these sentences are on the books to to, to alert us uh, what what God, what God desires of us so so there's that side of it too so so it's a balance okay so without further ado uh, uh, here 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 comes the talk okay I'm glad you're here we have a sort of an epic presentation uh, for 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 uh, for today and it's it's really, it's chronicling the whole um, story of, of, of Pinchas and um, his, 
he's dealing with this, this plague that breaks out among the Jewish people that's killing thousands and thousands of people that he's able to stop in the most amazing way. But I want to chronicle just the, the account that happened. Um, but I want to do it from the point of view of from reincarnation. Because what you see is in almost every key player, there, there are other lifetimes uh, coming to play at the same time. So there's, it's just, in my, in, in my study uh, up until now, I've never seen in one sort of um, episode of the Torah so much reincarnation coming from every single side. And so it's just a, a fascinating sort of glimpse into sort of the, the multiple storylines, if you will, that are going on in all of our lives. And of course, you know, the Torah is forever. And so whatever's going on in the Torah is going on in our lives. So this is sort of just a glimpse into appreciating just how incredibly rich reality is and how, how, how much is at stake in all of our actions, basically. So, so the two, just to introduce the, the, the key players here, um, you have Pinchas, of course, but Pinchas is sort of entering in the middle of the story. And, and the sort of like the whole kind of episode is going to climax, so to speak, with his encounter with Zimri, who's the head of the tribe of Shimon, and Cosby, who's the daughter of, the, of Balak, the king of Midian. So you have like really just these, and, and of course Pinchas is the grandson of Aaron the first high priest. So you have like very major figures from different, different parts of the world all sort of like uh, coming together here. But in order, to, um, in order to fully appreciate what, what happened, we have to start, we have to develop some context for the story. Because it didn't happen out of the blue. It, 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 it sort of built to, to Pinchas arriving on the scene. So, so let's, let's, let's just step back a couple of steps. And really, if you want to, you know, if you, if you want to know the story of Pinchas and the greatness of what he did, you have to look at the end of the previous Parsha the end of Parsha's Balak, because that's where the whole account is. And then Parsha's Pinchas actually begins with all the blessings that he received for being this amazing hero. But if you want to know what, what did he do, then you have to go to the end of the previous Parsha. And this is a very strange, this is a very strange episode. But I, I, I heard a very um, logical interpretation that will make sense of it. But it sounds very like totally out there and Scandalous. Well, the whole thing is sort of scandalous, but but this 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 piece in particular. So, basically, Bilam is trying to curse the Jews, and God keeps on stymieing him at every attempt because God says the Jews are blessed. You can't you can't curse what's blessed. Sorry, it's it's just not going to work out. So Bilam tries again and again and again, and he fails each time. And so Bilam, who it's not an idiot, comes up with a very, uh, very horrible plan. Horrible because he was correct, which is if I can get the Jews to sin, then they will create wrongdoing by themselves and then God will respond in this, you know, in this, this judgmental way. So I can, I can get them to do my work. All I have to do is entrap them. Let me just create a situation for them to do wrongdoing, and then they'll bring it on themselves. 
This was, this was Bilham's idea, and it, we'll see it was pretty effective, but not as effective as he wanted it to be, but it was, it was effective. So what did he do? He basically created this situation where he had the Midianite women were sort of camped near the Jewish people, and the Jewish men would come into the Midianite women's tents, and they were, they were selling items, so it seemed fairly casual, fairly innocent. They're just kind of buying various things, and then they go a little further into the tent, and it's a whole different scene. Okay, now all of a sudden there are these beautiful Midianite women, and there's a very particular type of idol worship going on in the back of the tent. And the Midianite women are, are basically saying to the Jewish men who are coming there, yes, we're, we're, you know, we want to do whatever you want to do with us. You know, they, and so, however, first we want you to worship our idol. Now, what was the nature of the worship of Baal Peor? And this is where it gets super strange. It was actually to go to the bathroom on it. And I'm trying to use nice language right now. Not like, okay, I just have to run to the bathroom, I'll be right back. <laughs> the more lengthy version of going to the bathroom. That's what you would do on top of this idol. Now, it's recorded in the Medrash that, that there was one woman who said that she worshipped every single idol in the world, and she said, this was the most disgusting. <laughs> so we have it by word of mouth from the ancients that even they considered this disgusting. Okay, but what was the logic behind it? So I heard um, from Reb Chaim Shmulevitz uh, a very excellent interpretation, which will make this very bizarre practice sound very, very logical. He said, "You know what it is? The 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 service, the 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 logic behind this, the nature of this type of worship, was that." It was a statement that's saying, that the individual is saying about themselves, whatever I do is good. Whatever I do, like, if I'm just sort of like being natural, right, because what's more natural than going to the bathroom, relieving yourself, right? Whatever I do is beautiful and good and, and sanctified. And so the idea was, let's take the lowest things, say, that a person does, and even that, as a baseline, let's, let's, let's talk about even that is so great. And if that's great, surely everything else that I'm doing is great. Now, what I think is so fascinating about this explanation, this analysis, is you really see a lot of contemporary society here. Of course, we don't go to this, this idol-worshipping extreme, obviously, obviously. But at the same time, that sort of frame of mind that, you know something... I just got to be me and whatever I do, whatever natural outgrowth that comes out of me is inherently great and beautiful because it's coming from me, from an organic, natural place, right? Therefore, it must be good. So, so, so Torah has a different approach. Torah has a, a, an approach which is that the highest level of self-expression is not doing whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. It's actually to refine yourself, to resist certain impulses, to go beyond yourself and to try harder in certain ways, even if it doesn't come naturally. The greatness of the act being 
precisely because it doesn't come naturally and because you have pushed yourself to a higher level and to greater refinement. And that that, therefore, is more meaningful. Okay. So, so the, so now in, in defense of some of the Jewish men who were engaging in this practice, some of them actually thought that they were in sort of like this best of both worlds situation, meaning to say, oh, I get to get with you and I have to do that on your idol? Well, it must be, because from, from our point of view, that must be disgracing your idol. They, like, they didn't know that that was the form of worshipping the idol. They thought that they were disgracing the idol. Do you understand? Because that, any logical person would, would come to that conclusion. Right? So in other words, not all of the people who participated in that among the Jewish people were actually kind of doing it with kavanah, let's say. In other words, by, with the intent of worshipping the idol. Okay, fine. So... So, but nevertheless, a judgment comes down and God talks to Moshe and says, gather up the leaders of the tribe because this is, you know, we, they didn't stop this activity and this is not, you know, this is not a good thing that's going on. So, among those people, now we're starting to set the stage for, for Pinchas, okay? Among those people who were called, because they were calling up the heads of the tribe to, to have accountability for, for the actions of their people, the 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 Miam laws points out that um, that the head of the tribe of Shimon, Zimri, who we already introduced as going to be one of the key players here, Zimri was not called in with the other group. And the people in the tribe of Shimon were like, "Hey, what's going on? This is a big disgrace. You weren't even called up with the other leaders. Like, you know, this is not this is not a great thing." Now there's there's like just an outcry going on and I don't know if the plague had quite started yet, I don't think it had quite started yet, but, but things are really getting like very very intense now in terms of like we're right on the edge of a plague about to break out and in this setting right now all of a sudden Cosby enters onto the scene so now it's going to go from like bad to worse, like we're already in crisis mode and this is like throwing, you know, gasoline on fire, like making it, like well, now there's a blaze, and out of this blaze walks, so to speak, Cosby. So now, who's Cosby? Cosby is the daughter of the king of Midian. So, now, just to backtrack for one moment, we said that Bilaam wanted to curse the Jews. Well, who was hiring Bilaam? Like, Bilaam wasn't doing it on his own. Bilaam was hired. He was like a hired assassin, if you will. Well, he was hired by Balak, the king of Midian. And Balak didn't really get the results that he was looking for, so now he's going into, you know, plan B, which is he's taking his own daughter and basically prostituting her, although she seemingly was on board, you know, for the sake of her people to try to kind of bring down the Jewish people over here. So the daughter of the king, who I imagine was a very, you know, elegant, refined, like, amazing woman, she kind of walks on the scene, and what's her plan? She's entering into the camp of the Jewish people. You ready for this? She has clear instructions to seduce Moshe Rabbeinu. She's going straight for the leader of the Jewish people, and again, their plan, their plan, which there's a logic to their plan, is if you get Moshe Rabbeinu to fall, 
then oh, that's the foundation. Like the whole thing is going to collapse. So the plan was not not a crazy. I mean, it was crazy to think Moshe would fall, but nonetheless, the the the, the on paper there's a there's a logic to this plan. But Cosby didn't get as far as Moshe Rabbeinu. Cosby enters, and then all of a sudden, Zimri sees her. And there's like this kind of magic moment. Zimri sees Cosby, and he's like, okay, you know, something happened, and we'll, we'll get to it later, because as I told you, there's a lot of reincarnation going on here, and all sorts of amazing things, but we'll get to that later. So Zimri sees Cosby, and he's smitten. And he's like, you know, I don't know what he said, but maybe he started with, hi. <laughs> what brings you to the camp of Israel? You know, like, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what he said exactly. And she was basically, you know, excuse me, you know, <laughs> appreciate the interest, but I, I'm, I, I, I'm going, where's Moshe? You know, I, I have an, I, that's where I'm going. And, and he says back to her, well, you know something? I'm greater than Moshe. Now, she's, you know, like, okay, I'm listening. <laughs> you know? So, he says, Moshe is from the tribe of Levi. Levi is the thirdborn of Yaakov. I am from the tribe of Shimon. In fact, I'm the head of the tribe of Shimon. That's the secondborn of Yaakov. So you see, I'm higher than Moshe Rabbeinu. So she bought it. She's like, okay, okay, it's good. So then it gets now, now it gets more intense. It says, the Medrash says that, that or the Mamloez brings it, that, that Pinchas, I'm not sure why they bring this detail, takes her by the hair and pulls her to Moshe Rabbeinu now. And now it's this like, this like, like what, however hot it was before, now it's like really like, you know, in terms of a tidal wave, like the waves are reaching skyscapes, skyscraper height at this point, okay? Now you have this direct confrontation between Zimri, the head of the tribe of Shimon, and Moshe Rabbeinu himself, with Cosby standing right there. And Zimri says to Moshe, she's a Midianite woman, and your wife, Zipporah, Moshe's wife, Zipporah, is a Midianite woman. What's the difference? You took a Midianite woman. Why can't I take a Midianite woman? So the, the, answer, the answer is because Moshe married Zipporah before the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. And at the, so that's, there's a whole, that's a separate epic in terms of Jewish law and Jewish practice. Not only that, but everyone, including all the, all the people who are not Jewish or from the Jewish family of Abraham and Sarah at that time, and Mount Sinai converted to Judaism. So, so it was a completely different situation, Moshe and Zipporah and, and Zimri and Cosby, completely different. But, but Moshe didn't have a ready answer for him, and now everyone starts like weeping. Like people are just like like it's like a shambles right now, and another fascinating detail. When Shimon took 
rather when, when, when Zimri, the head of the tribe of Shimon, took Cosby with him to see Moshe, he's accompanied by 24,000 guards from, from the tribe of Shimon. Okay? And now Zimri escorts Cosby back to his tent. All right? And those 24,000 guards remain there. Now, let's, let's do our first, um, our first uh, encounter with reincarnation here. So, everybody knows that in the time, 24,000 is a very interesting number. It really only appears one other time in, the, in, in Jewish history, which is the students of Rabbi Akiva who died during the plague for not honoring each other, The Torah tells us there were 24,000 students. And that these 24,000, or the 24,000 that are going to start dying in the plague that's about to really kick in at this point, that those 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva were these 24,000 men. A reincarnation. Okay? That's, that's, that's one, one link right there. Anyway, in the Torah itself, in the Chumash itself, it says that, that Pinchas, or rather, not Pinchas yet, um, Zimri, the head of the tribe of Shimon, and Cosby, the woman who he's just taken in, into his tent, did what they were doing before the eyes of all Israel. So some people get confused and think that they just kind of, you know, hit the sand, so to speak, in, 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 in open public. But they had actually gone into their tent but it was before the eyes of all Israel. In other words, everyone knew what was going on in the tent. Now, just just make a just make a, a stop right now, just to tell you an interesting piece of halacha, which uh, informs this, which is that um, according to some opinions, I think I heard it in the name of the Rambam, when is a couple formally married? So we tend to think that after the blessings are said under the chuppah. That's the end of the wedding, and then the couple's married. But according to at least the Rambam, that's not the case. After, everybody knows who's been to a Jewish wedding, after the couple is under the chuppah, they go into what's called the yichud room, which is that they're alone in a room, and then that's when actually they're officially, officially married. So listen to this phrase, because it's an interesting phrase. When they are publicly alone, and the community is like, that's proper. They, they are in a position now that they've married, they've sanctified each other to each other. They're, they now have the right to be behind closed doors together. So when they're publicly alone, that's when the marriage officially kicks in. So Zimri and Cosby are now publicly alone before the eyes of all Israel. You understand? So that's, that's, that's how you understand it, even though they're secluded in a tent. Now, Pinchas, like... Now a plague kicks in, and now the 24,000, thousands and thousands of people are just like dropping dead on the spot, okay? So Pinchas now comes up to Moshe Rabbeinu and says, isn't the halacha, he's asking him, he's not telling Moshe Rabbeinu, he says to him, isn't the halacha that, um, that, that, that a couple who's engaged in this activity that, that someone can go and, and sort of like stop it, meaning to say to, to execute them, and this is not something that's publicly taught, and this is not something that, 
the details of this are, 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 are very involved and, and detailed, and this is not, this is not a halacha uh, lamaisa that I'm telling you right now. This is not something you go out and practice right now. This is a very extreme particular case. So, so Moshe says back to him, Moshe didn't, say, says back to him, the one who sort of reads the pronouncement is, 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 is the one who should enact it. But Moshe Rabbeinu is very careful not to tell him, yes, go and do it. Because part of the whole sort of halachic parameters around this act is that it has to be completely done on your own. You can't be instructed to do it. So Moshe says it in a roundabout way, but Pinchas understands that he has the green light to go ahead and do this. Now he's going to take his life in his own hands because any type of, any type of justice that he's about to execute, and I'm using that word very deliberately right now, if the circumstances aren't exactly right, if they stop him, then they are just defending their own life and, and they have done nothing wrong if they kill Pinchas who's coming in to stop them. So, so it's, it's a very dangerous thing that Pinchas is about to do. Now, now let's just pause for a moment because we have another round of reincarnation happening right now. And that is in terms of Pinchas, and you'll see how this is about to culminate, um, we have to just sort of take a few steps back. After the, after the sin of the golden calf, what, what was basically the problem with this whole sin of the golden calf? So the way I heard it from, from the, from the Briskarov was that you see, if you say the problem is they built a, a golden statue, right? Well, let me ask you a question. De, weren't there two st golden statues of angels on top of the Arna Kodesh that held the, the tablets, the, the luchos? There were two golden statues of angels, like in the Holy of Holies. So clearly the idea of a golden statue in and of itself is not problematic. So what was so terrible about the golden calf? And the answer is amazingly simple. God told us to make those statues. He didn't tell us to make this statue. Very, very, very simple answer. But a very far-reaching answer, actually. So, so, so they constructed something, this golden calf. And okay, we can't, it's a huge subject. We can't go into all the details. But the problem is, is that no one asked them to do it. So, so now part of the fixing of the golden calf was now they're getting this tabernacle in the desert. Now they're getting the Mishkan, which they're being instructed to build dozens of times. Get this part and get that part and put this part with that part and get that part and put this part with that part and over and over and over again. In other words, part of the fixing of the golden calf, which they built without being commanded to do, is being given a much larger project that they're repeatedly commanded to do. Okay? So the day that the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is complete, the Medrash says that Hashem rejoiced in the construction of the Mishkan like he, like he rejoiced when he created the entire world. And that the Mishkan itself was a microcosm, a miniature of the entire universe. Okay? So the day of the inauguration, after they finally finished the Mishkan, which is, you know, a major event in Jewish history, the first day of Nisan, so you have the two sons of Aaron. Aaron had four sons, but these are the two eldest sons, 
Nadav and Avihu. Now, Nadav and Avihu are super holy. Like, so holy that their opinions that they were holier than Moshe and Aaron. That's how holy Nadav and Avihu were. And they go into the Mishkan, and this is the first day of the Mishkan, and something tragic happens. Basically, and there are about ten different reasons that the rabbis give what went wrong, but the bottom line is that they die. They, 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 they did something wrong. Okay, like I said, there's a whole laundry list of what those possibilities are that they did wrong, but they did something wrong. Now, one of the opinions that they did wrong is that they paskined halacha in front of Moshe and Aaron. Meaning to say, who, here you have Moshe who got the Torah from God in, in heaven, and you're saying what the halacha is in front of Moshe Rabbeinu? Like, it's a big chutzpah. It's a big chutzpah. So, so this is one of the things that, they, that said that they did wrong and what caused their death in the Mishkan. Okay. Obviously, these are exceedingly deep and complex Torah mysteries, but I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you how the whole reincarnation scenario plays out over here. So now you see Pinchas, before Pinchas acts, and before he goes into execute Zimri and Cosby, the first thing he does is he asks Moshe Rabbeinu, what's the halacha? What is the Jewish law on this? So you see here that this is a fixing for Nadav and Avihu. All right, so that's going to come to play in, a, in like 30 seconds. So now, Pinchas is taking his life into his hands. Remember, there's a play going on. Thousands of people are dropping. And Pinchas takes his spear, and he takes the top off, the, the, the spear part, the pointy part of the spear, the metal blade, puts it in his robe, and he's walking like he has a walking stick. And he's walking through these 24,000 guards, okay? And he, you know, there's like, hey, where are you going? And he's like, what? You know, only the, the tribe of Shimon can have fun? The, the, the tribe of Levi is not allowed to have fun? And they're like, okay, okay, go ahead. So he continues on, and he gets into the tent, and it says that he was so scared that basically, like, we have this concept. Have you ever heard that someone say, I'm, I'm scared to death? Right? Have you ever heard that phrase? He was actually scared to death. That his soul flew out of his body. And you ready for this? The souls of Nadav and Avihu enter into his body. Okay? Now this explains something else. Now I wish... See, I'm going to try to do this with props because <laughs> it's... Uh, <laughs> It's not a hard idea. It's not a hard idea. But if you have props, it makes it even better. Okay. So just for those of you who are listening right now, I'm holding three items, one on top of another on top of another. So you've got three items. Okay. So now when Hashem made the first group of Kahanim, that's the, the priestly class of Jews. Those are the Jews that administered in the Mishkan. Okay. That was a small group, very special, very holy. So what he did was... He just made Aaron, that's the top prop here, 
and his sons, that's the second prop, Aaron and his sons were made kahanim. Okay? So they were kahanim. So I'm pushing the top two off to the side. So now anyone who is going to be a Kohen after this, and there were many Kohens till this day, have to be born to existing Kohens, to this first group, the top two. So in other words, any future Kohen has to be the child of either Aaron or his sons, right? So to become a Kohen at this point in history, once the first initial group has been sanctified and set aside, you have to be born from that group. Is that clear? Okay, but I told you I was holding three things. So now what happens if you were alive at the time that Aaron and his sons, the first two groups, right, were set aside? Because we're not just talking about this for no reason. That was Pinchas's situation. In other words, Pinchas was the grandson of Aaron. But Pinchas was already alive when Aaron and his sons were set aside. And what do we just say? Only once they were set aside, if you were born after that, could you be a Kohen. Is that clear? Yeah? Okay. So if you were already alive, if you were already alive like Pinchas was, at the time that Aaron and his sons were set aside, you're out of luck. Because the only way to become a Kohen is to be born to one of those, that, that, that group that had just been set aside. Okay, so even though you're the grandson of Aaron, you're the son of Aaron's children, it's too late. You fell outside of the group that, that was selected to be Kohanim. Okay, is that, is that clear? Okay. So what does that mean? It, it means something very big. It means that not only Pinchas wasn't a Kohen, he could never ever be a Kohen. Could never ever ever be a Kohen. That's it. Because he wasn't part of that initial group that was set aside. Okay. So after Pinchas does this amazing heroic act, which we'll get into in a moment, after he does this amazing act, God makes him a Kohen. But you can't be a Kohen. But God can do anything. <laughs> right? But there's a the, the metaphysics of this is very, very interesting because what did we just say? The souls of Nadav and Avihu, who are the sons of Aaron, who's part of that first group, flew into his body. So he had the soul of a Kohen at that moment. So there's an internal, so to speak, logic to the fact that Pinchas now has the status of a Kohen. It's very, very amazing. Now, we're going to use this to answer another question. So the Chidusha Arim asks this question, which is, you know, if you look at Parsha's Pinchas, after it goes into all the rewards that's given Pinchas and everything like this, there's a whole section of the Korbonas. They talk about all the offerings that you bring for all of the holidays. And, you know, this is like a very epic, central piece of Torah. I mean, this is sort of like the list of, of offerings for, that, that you bring. I mean, so why of all places? I mean, it's such an important piece. It's sort of like, you know, like this is like should have been, you, you laminate this and you put it on a wall. Like, you know what I mean? This is like basic operating information. We need this information. What's it doing like in the middle or whatever of Parshish Pinchas of all places? 
If anything, it should have been in, in, in Sefer Vayikra. Sefer Vayikra is, 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 is the book that talks about all the offerings. That would have been the natural place for it. So, so the Chidush gives a very excellent answer, and it makes perfect sense in line of what we just read. Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, right? They were, they were going to be officiating in the Mishkan, but they, they, their lives were taken that first day. But really, they were going to be overseeing like a lot of all of the Korbonos. Well, now, Nadav and Avihu are back in action. They're back in action because they've entered into Pinchas. So it makes sense now that in Parsha's Pinchas, when their souls have been reactivated, so to speak, then now we have the list of, of offerings of Korbonus that, that, that we have for the whole year. So just an interesting, interesting side point, but it gives you a, a, a look into how the Torah is organized and based on, you know, this transmigration of souls. Okay. So now... I want to add one more point. And you really, it's, this is a bit hard to just hear. You sort of need a, a, another visual aid, really, to appreciate what I'm about to tell you. But, um, but I was once like thinking about Parshas Pinchas, and I was looking at the, the first letter of Pinchas's name, which is the letter Pei. Now, you should know that there are halachas, there are laws of how exactly to write the letters. You can't just kind of write the letters in a Torah scroll. Every single letter has to be written in a very particular fashion. And I saw this myself in the, in the Mishnah Brewer. They're talking about the halachas of each of the letters, how each of the letters have to be written. And when it gets to the letter Pei, there's a fascinating, fascinating halacha regarding how the letter Pei has to be written. And again, I wish I could show you a chart right now so that you could see it with your own eyes. And you can't see it in a book. Because the way the letter Pei is written, say, in an, in an average Hebrew book, is not this way. You have to look in a Torah scroll. So if you remember, next time you have a chance to look in a Torah scroll, look at a letter Pei, and you'll see this. Which is that, you know, we say that the, the Torah is black fire on white fire. So if you, if you look at the letter Pei, it's black, it's so to speak, the black fire. Inside the letter Pei, there, it has to be written so there's the outline of the letter Bez. Bez is the second letter of the Aleph Bez. It's the number two. So in other words, you, within the black fire pay, you have a white fire Bez. If you saw it, you'd be like, wow. But trust me, it's there. It's actually the law. So I wanted to say like this, since Bez is inside pay, pay stands for Pinchas, Bases too, that you see inside of Pinchas are the two souls, Nadav and Avihu. Right? So there's sort of like just a hint to it, just in the way the letter itself is constructed. Um, so Pinchas enters into the tent and he spears Cosby and Zimri in the act. And it says 12 miracles took place. One, he was able to do it at all. <laughs> Another, that he got by the guards. Another, that he was actually able to, that they didn't separate before he went in. Another, that they didn't 
kill him? Another that they didn't scream and then the 24,000 rush in and literally rip Pinchas apart? Another that he was able to actually lift their bodies and that the spear didn't break and that he had the strength to lift it and that he entered out outside and now everyone saw they didn't bleed and now remember he's a Kohen so he can't have contact with the dead. They remained alive stuck in this situation and then that he was able to march around the camp which is like was a big expanse you've got about two and a half million people here that he was able to march around the camp these were all miracles so that everyone understood what was happening and the plague stops and this is, this is quite amazing. Now, Pinchas gets this blessing. Pinchas gets this blessing that he's, he becomes a Kohen. It says a Kohen forever. It uses this word Leolam, forever. And how can you become a Kohen forever? You'd have to have to live a long time, right? Well, now we have another reincarnation. It says Pinchas zu Eliyahu. And Eliyahu, is, of course, is the one who never dies. Eliyahu is, is this sort of amazing figure in, in Jewish thought that sort of goes from heaven to earth, kind of back and forth, and comes down in different guises, different garbs. And if you merit maybe once in your life, you'll see Eliyahu, and you'll sometimes he says he often comes as a beggar, looking like someone who you wouldn't give the time of day to. And if you act in the proper way, you know, your, your life changes. You know. People have gone on 40-day fasts and done all sorts of things just to merit to be able to see Eliyahu. There's all sorts of stories about Eliyahu in Jewish history. So Pinchas zu Eliyahu. Pinchas becomes Eliyahu. Now, I'll tell you something really just super way out. Super, super way out. You know, at a bris, we... Eliyahu, we know, is at every bris. This is very, very special. Um, and uh, do you know, if you look in the Siddur, there's, there's a certain Seder, that, a certain order to the things that we say at a bris. The first thing we say is, Baruch Abba, we welcome the baby. And then, if you look, what do we say? Or maybe this is the first thing. I don't know. It's either the first or the second thing. We read a couple of verses about Pinchas <laughs> at a bris. That's how we begin a bris. Isn't that weird? What does Pinchas have to do with a bris? Well, we just gave you a very easy answer. Pinchas is Eliyahu. Okay, but you know something? You could have also have just read any number of things about Eliyahu. <laughs> Why'd you have to go a step back from Pinchas? It's deep. It's deep. So I'll tell you something even deeper. So I learned this from Rabbi Wolfson. It says when Adam and Chava, well, Adam specifically, was in Gan Eden when he was first created, he was created without an orla. So an orla, you know, is that extra... Uh, flap of skin that's on a male that gets cut off during a circumcision. 
And that's very, very deep. Like, why would what, God, who constructs a human being, which is you can't make a person, like, it's endless miracles. Why would God make a person with an extra flap of skin and then ask you to cut off the skin? Obviously, he was able to make a heart and he was able to make a circulatory system and a brain and a nervous system. I mean, there's no end to what God can do. So he forgot to... Oh, I forgot my keys in the dresser. You're meeting me at the restaurant. Can you bring my keys? Like, he forgot to take off this piece of skin? No, no, no. The whole point is, and you see, really, all of Jewish thought is almost like just summed up in this one act. God wants us to be partners with him to finish creation. That's the point. It's a partnership. So God gives us a tiny, tiny bit of work to do. He just says, just remove that, and then it's done. But, so it's even more interesting that when Adam was created, he was created without this orla, without this extra piece of skin. But after Adam and Chava ate from the tree of knowledge and they left the Garden of Eden, this orla, this extra piece of skin, grew on Adam. That's the origin of the orla. Okay? Now listen to this. This is super Kabbalistic. Adam, when Adam is born, he contains every future person that's ever going to be born is contained within Adam. Which means on some level, every single person is descending from some part of Adam. So it says that Zimri descended from Adam's Orla. And when Pinchas goes in and he spears Zimri, so to speak, he was removing this Orla. Fascinating. Not only that, but that's why we're talking about Pinchas at a circumcision till this day. And then I just want to add something more. It's just occurring to me now. If we're talking about that, because there's so many episodes involving um, Eliyahu in Tanakh, why not just talk about Eliyahu if Eliyahu is at the bris? Why are we going back a lifetime, a previous lifetime to Pinchas? Because who knows, maybe it's just a little hint that this baby that's being born lived before. Right? that this is a continuation in the journey of this soul. Maybe. Maybe just to sensitize us. Who knows? Who knows? So now, Pinchas gets this tremendous blessing. And you have to understand something, because you can't even begin to plumb the depths of who Pinchas was unless you understand this. When he did what he did, there wasn't one fraction of a fraction, there wasn't one iota of an iota of anger. You see, a lot of people, it's sort of like, you're not doing the right thing. And are they mad that you're not doing the right thing? Because, you know, ideally we're all kind of doing what God wants. Or, or, or is the person who's getting angry just mad that you're not doing what he's doing? Oh, 
doing it, so you should be doing it. That's why I'm mad at you. Well, that's just another form of arrogance, isn't it? I want you to do it. I'm not going to tell you this. I might not even be in touch with it, but I want you to do it because I'm doing it. <laughs> I had to do it. If I had to do it, you're going to do it. So let's all be miserable together. You know? Or, or, there was Pinchas. Pinchas is what? Hashem, we're, we're your people. We have to do your will. What's going on? This, this couple here is like just totally breaking down. Like are just all the aspects of, 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 of what we're trying to do, what you asked us to do. Pinchas was one thousand, ten thousand, ten billion, ten trillion percent L'Shem Shemayim. It wasn't about Pinchas. And God himself testified to the fact that it wasn't about Pinchas, that it was only about God. And that's why, from that standpoint, you can understand why God gives what sounds like a very peculiar phraseology, but it's in the Torah itself. He blesses Pinchas with a covenant of peace. So you would say, peace? Well, it's, he just killed two people. How is that peace? But because of the utter pureness, and I don't know if we've had other Pinchases in any culture since. Pinchas is the, the gold standard of just like being outside of yourself, beyond yourself, and And he becomes the Kain Gadol, becomes the high priest. And he becomes Eliyahu, who announces Mashiach. Okay, so now what can we say? What can we say about Zimri? Now this is also very deep. Because it sounds, it seems like Zimri, like, oh brother, get it together. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're triggering a plague, you're like debating Moshe Rabbeinu in like the worst way in, in public and get it together, Zimri. What are you doing? So, so the Chedush and you should know the Ishbitzer Rebbe as well, but the, I'm just talking about the Chedush right now, but they were colleagues, okay? They were learning together and they, they were like, you know, they were in the same group. So it's just interesting that it's a lot of times people were talking about the Ishbitzer Rebbe in terms of his defense of a Zimri. But what's interesting now is here now you're also hearing it from in a slightly different way, but you're hearing it from the first Ger Rebbe, from the Chedush Arim, a defense of Zimri. And it's very beautiful and applies to all of us. So, so listen carefully. The Chedush Arim points out that the Talmud says that another name for Zimri was Shlumiel. Okay, now your name is your essence. Shlumiel has the word Shlemus in it. Shlemus means complete. So the Chedush Arim understands from this name because the word Shalom, which is a name for God, Shalom, what's, what's so great about Shalom? Why is that a name for God? Because Shalom means the totality of everything. It's, it means it's complete, it's completion. So Shlumiel is, is, is an aspect of this name. It's like this name. You can almost hear the word Shalom in Shlumiel. 
So from this you see if Shlumiel was the name of Zimri, according to the Talmud, then, then, then he, was, he was a tzaddik. And of course we know that the heads of the tribes were tzaddikim, they were holy people. So now you can say we have a, an even bigger question. If he was such a big tzaddik, then what was he doing in, involved in, 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 this, in this whole episode? So listen to this. The Chidush says, he made a mistake. He made a mistake, but it wasn't his essence. His essence was that he was righteous, but he made a mistake. Now I'm going to put it to you in other words. There's a popular singer today named Kanye. Okay? So Kanye has a lyric that I think is awesome. And it goes like this. He says, you're not perfect, but you're not your mistakes. That's what the Chudush Erem is saying. You're not perfect, but you're not your mistakes. People have to be very, this is one of the critical things that, are you going to be able to get through life or not? One of the critical mechanisms of whether you're actually going to be able to make it through life is understanding that you are not your mistakes. How are you defining yourself? If you define yourself as the sum total of everything you ever did wrong, good luck. Good luck. Because I don't know how long you're going to last, honestly. Or whether you're going to make it till the end. But if you understand that you are not your mistakes, you make mistakes, but you are not your mistakes, then you can make it through life. Okay, so now we're getting to the big finish. Okay? In terms of reincarnation. I told you that it wasn't so simple between Zimri and Cosby. What was that attraction that was going on there? And they consummated, right? So there was clearly something going on there. What, what was going on there? So Kabbalistically, we say the following, and it's just... The more you think about it, the more webs and diagrams and intersections throughout Jewish history you find. Just, it's really something. So, according to our tradition, Zimri and Cosby were originally Dina and Shechem. Now, Dina, of course, is one of the daughters of Yaakov. Okay? And she was raped by Shechem out in the field. And then here comes circumcision again. Shem, like, like the family, especially the brothers of Dina, are outraged. They're like, what is going on? This is not, no, sorry, this is not happening. And, you know, word gets, gets, gets sent back to uh, Shem and his whole tribe that this is not, this will not endure, as they say. And, and basically the whole tribe of Shem says, okay, listen, we're going we're gonna to get it together. We'll join with you guys and we'll do it kind of in a more acceptable way and yes, this was off, but we're going to make it right. And they all get circumcised. Here comes circumcision again. And while they're weak, in comes Shimon and Levi. Again, here comes the tribe of Shimon. And now Levi, Pinchas of course was a Levi. They come in and they wipe out the tribe. So talk about a talk about a very like difficult parent 
Dina and Shechem. I mean, seemingly maybe had Shechem been a mensch and like approached it in the proper way, he saw her in a field and then he just acted like an animal. How about if he saw her in a field and then he had his father approach Yaakov Avinu, two heads of two little desert kingdoms talking to each other. So can you imagine? They come back. They come, and by the way, Yaakov Avinu was not happy about what his sons did. But according to the Rambam, they were Chayiv Misa because one of the seven universal commandments is to set up court systems and Shechem did not have court systems in order to properly adjudicate what Shechem had done. And so they were Chayiv Misa. Okay, that's according to the Rambam. Nonetheless, it was, it's not a happy chapter in Jewish history and world history, to say the least. Neither is Pinchas and Cosby, or rather, Zimri and Cosby. By the way, we told you that Zimri's name was Shlumiel. Cosby, Cos means a lie. So the Chedush Rim says she, on the other hand, was like the root of like lies. Okay, so... But they come back and they get another opportunity. We see, we've spent the whole time today talking about how that worked out or didn't work out. But now this is where it gets super wild. They come back again. You know who they come back as? Rabbi Akiva and his second wife. Now this is like, wow. Rabbi Akiva and his second wife. Now, what did I tell you earlier? A plague broke out, and 24,000 students of who? Rabbi Akiva died. And what did I tell you today? That when Zimri and Cosby got together, a plague broke out, and 24,000 people died. And now Zimri is coming back as Rabbi Akiva. Isn't this fascinating? Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Now, how, what was the story of Rabbi Akiva marrying his second wife? This in itself is, is, is amazing. So the story goes like this. There was a big mucky muck and ancient Rome. His name, this is at the time of Rabbi Akiva. You know, this is around the time of the 70 CE, approximately. So, um, so his name was Turnus Rufus. He was a big higher up in Roman society. And he's, he's at home, and he's in a bad mood, and he has a beautiful wife, and his wife says to him, what's the matter? And he goes, you know, this old man, meaning Rabbi Akiva, I saw him in the marketplace, and he got the better of me. You know, like, how you think you're going to out-debate Rabbi Akiva? Like, like really, you know, who, who is this joker? Who did he think he was, you know? So, anyway, his wife says to her husband, Turnus Rufus, his wife says, don't worry, I'll take care of him. She goes into the marketplace, she finds Rabbi Akiva, she opens her robe and she exposes herself to him. 
how does Rabbi Akiva react? He spits on the ground, he cries, and then he laughs. And she's like, completely like, taken by this. She says, what, 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 you know, explain yourself. He says, I spit because what you did was disgusting. He said, I cried because no matter how beautiful you are, you're still going to be food for worms, like everybody else, right? We get buried, and then the worms just eat our flesh. And why I laughed, I can't tell you. So why did he laugh? Because he understood that he was going to marry her. And Turnus Rufus was very wealthy. After he died, all of his wealth went to his wife. His wife married Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva received that wealth and was able to keep the yeshiva system going and everything like this. What's, 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 I'd just like to add a side point. I don't know if the commentators say this, but I just want to add a side point, which I thought was striking. Zimri, if you remember, has Cosby right there. Right? And we're saying that that's going to be Rabbi Akiva and his wife, who, in this version, they become very righteous. Right? They, after all this reincarnation, they, they get it right. So, but, but, but just take a step back. You have Zimri and Cosby standing in front of Moshe Rabbeinu talking about Moshe and his wife. Right? Like, why shouldn't I marry her? You married Zipporah, says to Moshe. Now, Moshe himself says in a different place in the Talmud, why did you give the Torah to me? You should have given it to Rabbi Akiva. <laughs> so what's sort of just interesting to me is that here you have this almost parallel between Moshe and Rabbi Akiva and how like, both of their wives, like all of a sudden, like Zimri and Cosby get it right. Like Now all of a sudden they they actually do become a pairing that is, so to speak, worthy of Moshe and Sipor. You know, I'll tell you something personal. Years before I heard that story about how Rabbi Akiva with the, the spitting, the crying and the laughing, right? I was out on one of my very first dates with my wife, my wife-to-be. We were just dating. And she said something, and all of a sudden my head started swirling because all these crazy events in my life all of a sudden made sense to me, and they all made sense to me because I understood I was going to marry her. And I broke out laughing. And she said to me, why are you laughing? And I said, I can't tell you. <laughs> and then years later, I, I, I heard this story. You know, it's just strange. You know? Anyway, so, so this, is, this, is, this, is, this is what it is. This is, this is um, the extent that I know on the subject. I've told you what I know about the, what the subject but again, we, our tradition, okay, listen, you should know the Sadia Gon, one of our greatest Torah figures, does not believe in reincarnation. 
Okay? As far as I know, the Rambam doesn't speak about it. Nonetheless, you have people like the Vilna Gon talking about it, right? You have people like, obviously, the Zohar is talking about it, the Ari is talking about it, all Hasidis from the Baal Shem Tov to every other Rebbe is talking about it. So, you know, if you want sources to rely on that, that it's part of our tradition, you have very, very exalted sources that say it's very much part of our tradition. But I just want you to know it's not a slam dunk. Just full, full disclosure, you should know. But, but nonetheless, coming from the standpoint that it, that it is going on, that means we've been here before maybe multiple times before. So then everybody wants to know if that's the case, how can I fix my soul? I want to get it right. I want to get it right. I don't want to keep on going through this. I want to get it right. So I'll just tell you an Eitzah, a bit of advice that, that I saw from the Me'oranayim, from the Chernobyl Rebbe. And he says, look, Look at, if you want to fix your soul, look at the thing that you're doing best in your life and look at the thing that you're doing worst in your life. The thing that you're doing best in your life, mitzvah-wise, do it even better. Keep, keep it up. Keep it up. You're doing it good? Build on your success. Success leads to success. Do it even better. And, you know, everybody has a, an Avera, something that they're commanded not to do, that they're drawn to very strongly. We're all born with this, right? Whatever it is, for every person it's going to be different. Try to not do that. That thing that you feel most compelled to do in the negative, try not to do that. And the thing that you're best at in the positive, try to do even more of that. And this is, you know, this is one of our greatest Hasidic masters, right? This is the advice that he gives. It's seemingly very simple advice, but at least it's a direction, because it's a very mysterious thing. How do I fix my soul? Everybody wants to fix their soul. How do I do it? Okay, that's a good place to start. All right, now I want to tell you one more thing. I had a conversation with someone about this yesterday, and I just want to, I'm not going to name any names, but I just want to report the conversation, because, because I'm a big... Uh, a big advocate against anyone doing what they call past life regression. So what that is, is that there are certain hypnotists, um, some of them as far as I know are even uh, Torah observant, um, and again, I'm not talking about them, they, I'm just talking to you guys. And what they do is they put people in a, a state of hypnosis, and then they believe that they're able to take you back into a past life, and that you then speak from the point of view of who you were before this lifetime. Don't do it. <laughs> I feel very strongly advocating, do not do that. Do not do that. And I'm going to try to give you a couple of explanations, but I want you to know that it's born from someone who I know who did it, who is a very, you know, very beautiful Jew who is really entering into a leadership position and okay he had other issues but he did it he's no longer observant and it led him to very negative a very very negative place there's a lot more going on in his life but but I know that 
that this was one of the things that really triggered his downfall. So I'm telling you this based on experience. But I also want to just expand it beyond that, why I think you shouldn't do it. First of all, I don't think it's accurate at all. But let's just say it is accurate. I don't think it's accurate. But I, I don't doubt, by the way, that the person under hypnosis will start talking about the various lifetime that they're in. I don't doubt that the person will say those words. I think that it's been recorded. So, But whether that, that doesn't mean it's accurate. And even if it is accurate, I think you shouldn't do it. And let me tell you why. And I'm gonna, it sounds like I'm going to change the topic totally to a completely crazy place right now, but you'll understand what I'm getting to. So there was an article that I read on the op-ed page of the New York Times years ago, written by Steve Martin. Now, it's, you, you, you may or may not recognize the name. He's uh, done many movies and, and, and was, is, is you know, one of the all-time greatest uh, stand-up comedians. He's also written plays. He's an actor. He has a very rarefied art collection, one of the great art collections in the world. He's like a very sophisticated, interesting guy. Okay, So <clears throat> he was doing something, I don't know if it was at the 92nd Street Y or whatever it was, but it was a conversation with Steve Martin. It was going to be like this very high-end interview with him on a stage, and people paid good money to be in the audience to listen to this like very rarefied conversation that's going to take place. And the nature of conversation, like really good conversation, like I don't know if you've ever had the the blessing to actually participate in a great conversation or to witness a great conversation. But the way um, Steve Martin described it in the op-ed piece um, is that it goes, a great conversation goes to all these very unexpected places. Like you don't, you don't really know where you're going to go. And you find yourself exploring all these realms, right? By the way, that's one of the reasons why it's good not to interrupt someone when they're speaking. That's, that's proper Torah behavior, not to interrupt someone. Even if you feel as though you've heard them say this before, you never know where they're going to go afterwards and how you derailed that train of thought. So the idea was this great gifted interviewer is talking with this very creative intellectual and they're going to, we don't even know where they're going to go. Okay, so why did Steve Martin write this article? Because the whole thing got derailed. And he was very upset about it. And he was so upset about it that he wrote this piece and the New York Times published it. What did they do? People in the, people in the audience, like someone of the organizers said, oh, you know, we should, um, oh, this, you know what will make this interview even better? We'll get questions from the audience. And they got questions and they interrupted the conversation and they started feeding in questions from the audience. And the questions from the audience were the most basic questions like, what was your favorite movie? You know, what, like things that this whole event was supposed to transcend. In other words, that stuff you could probably just go on his press release and you could get those basic facts. This was not the occasion to ask him what his favorite movie was. Do, do, do you understand? And he mourned. And, and it's funny because when I first read the article, I was just sort of like, 
I don't understand why he wrote this. I don't understand why the New York Times published it as an op-ed piece, no less, which is usually like rarefied discussions about, you know, geopolitics and, you know, public policy and things like that. Like, why are they talking about how Steve Martin is mad that his conversation didn't go better? <laughs> you know what I mean? But then I, but it never left me. It never left me. And I realized this whole idea of these places that you can go in conversation. Okay, so now I'm ready to get back to reincarnation and why I think it's a very bad practice and I strongly discourage anyone from going into one of these past life regressive sort of like sessions. Let's give the benefit of the doubt and let's say that it's accurate, which again, I believe that it isn't, even as the person is talking about some historical event. Let's say the person says, you know, and there I was, and I was in the, you know, hiding in a basement from the Nazis, and then they stormed into the room, and they started choking me to death, and now I understand why I, whenever I, I, I get scared in my present lifetime, I, I, my throat tightens because I'm reliving the trauma of this past. Okay. Let's even say it's accurate. You see, we've had techniques, we've had spiritual techniques for thousands of years. So one of my first questions is, why haven't we done this for thousands of years? Another one of my points. There's a, one of the 613 mitzvahs is that you shouldn't consult a fortune teller. Don't go to an astrologer, don't go to a palm reader, don't go to anything like that, don't go to a psychic, because God deliberately constructed the world in a way that you don't know the future. That was part of God's plan. It's not just like, oh, I'm stuck in this lifetime, but if I could find out, that would be even... No. The whole point is that you don't know. The whole point is that you don't know. So now what do you do instead? You have a muna, you pray, you, 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 you lock into the mitzvahs of the Torah, and that's how you confront the unknown. That, that's God's design. That's, that, 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 that's His will. So in terms of the past, if God has deliberately, by design, hid our past from ourselves, that, that's part of the design. That's part of the design. And believe me, this hypnotic type of trick or technique, whatever they're using now, believe me, believe me, in the thousands of years of the Jewish people, who are an intensely spiritual people, you don't think that they didn't figure out this technique? And they didn't practice it deliberately. So you have Jewish history weighing in on this. But now I want to make my final point, and this is the reason why I brought up the whole Steve Martin thing. You can be right and you can be wrong. Because I'm, I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt that the person is actually testifying about themselves correctly. Which I don't think is necessarily the case at all. But, but let's say they're right. They can point you to, you can point yourself to a specific, and that specific 
You're so busy concentrating on that specific that you're not allowing this interaction, this conversation between your soul and your destiny and your life in order to flourish and in order to blossom for you to see all the possibilities in front of you that need fixing. Where the real direction is sort of like where the real current is taking you in order to bring you to that place where you can do your fixing. In other words, you can get a data point which could be accurate but because you're so stuck to that data point, it ends up disabling you from going with the flow and actually accessing the truer, bigger picture. So, I don't know if you've ever uh, heard this expression, a little information is a dangerous thing. Sometimes if you just know a little bit, it can actually be more counterproductive if you didn't even know that at all. So that's my, that's my, that, that's my feeling. That, that I believe that if you really want to do the fixing of our soul in this lifetime, you will actually be more effective not knowing. Take it, take it from the standpoint of your current life, from your relationship with, with your strengths and your weaknesses, with the Torah, with Hashem, and God willing, all of us will be able to fix everything we need to in our lifetime, and that we should see the whole healing of the world. Amen. Now for some questions and answers. Yeah. What? <laughs> yeah. Well, I just wanted to say two things that came up for me. One of them is that you comment about Pinchas really coming from a place of not anger and, you know, like yeah. a complete right. straight place. But to me, the fact that you say that he was scared to death shows how humble he was yeah. faced with the situation. Because when you're angry, you're, you're just so angry that, you know, just psychologically, you know, it just shows... It's yeah. interesting. I always thought that Pinchas was angry, but a good anger, because there's a good anger for Hashem, right? Right. But so you know what? It says, the Chidush Rim says that that thing that you thought was anger was actually the Gevura of Chesed. That's how he puts it, which means sort of like the power from coming from a positive place. That he wasn't coming from a negative place, but it was this empowered Chesed. That was that was playing itself out, which is a very interesting way of understanding. What would you say to someone, Jewish or not, or let's just say Jewish, um, who did try the past life regression or the trip, and that's not me, but but who right. really got some good out of it, tangible yeah. good. Yeah. I don't just mean like yeah. momentary. Yes, good. I hear. I mean like right. really. Yeah. Made a long-term positive right. difference, right. or at least a long-term positive difference started after they did it. If you yeah. don't want to directly attribute yeah. to it, yeah, yeah, I'm what with you. What would you say to them? I would say just keep up the good work. You know what I mean? Like for instance, I'll tell you a halacha. It's not very well known. Let's say it's a fast day. Like we just had a fast day last week, right? It, they call them the minor fast. They're not minor, but I don't know where that phrase comes from exactly. But anyway. So let's say you wake up, you have a cup of coffee and a bagel, 
and then all of a sudden says, someone says to you, are you fasting? Go, oh, it's a fast day. So if you, the halakha actually is, is if the person starts fasting from that moment on, then it counts as though they fasted that day. They fulfilled their obligation. Like, like you, you might think that, oh no, I ruined it, I might as well just continue eating and then I'll make it up another day. No, you can actually do it right there. So that kind of springs to mind. And, and I would say that if someone, you know, engaged in this type of past life regression already, hopefully they got something positive out of it, and then just stay with the positive. That's all. You know what I mean? That's all. <laughs>